Hello, good evening and welcome to Seascapes. On tonight's programme, we visit a fish school in Hoth. There's more on the Dáil Inquiry into the Coast Guard Service. And we have the story behind a mysterious circle on the charts of the Southern Atlantic Ocean. Dorans of Hoth Harbour in Dublin are a family with strong Wexford connections and with 60 years in the Irish fish business. The late Michael Doran was a well-known fisherman who had 12 vessels at one point. And now his son, Sean, is behind a new initiative, the Hoth School of Fish, which aims to offer visitors to the port an insight into the industry, learning about fish species, quotas and different types of gear, and also with a trip around Ireland's eye thrown in. Lorna Siggins met Sean on the pier in Hoth recently and he first showed her the old ice plant where a maritime museum is planned. So obviously, well that'll all be part of the museum as well and uh, uh, that just came off the old silver harvest the beam trawler. I just put that up there because um, at one stage there was a diving school in here and uh, I used to t- train the divers how to get their paddy course and any time when they got their paddy course they used to ring the bell. It was a sort of initiation. <laughs> we we used this as a workshop for the trawlers and we had two or three people working out there, engineer and welder. Mm-hmm. We used to repair the engines and here's an old fuel pump on the floor still. <laughs> we get a lot of uh, stuff down like you know we've a lot of stuff models of trawlers and uh, compasses and old equipment that you know is now no longer used since the digital age. Right. Like with the old you have all this at home? Yeah, we have the old like Mark 21 plotters and our Mark 21 navigation machines and the plotters and the, the pre, as I say, computerized stuff that was developed. I suppose it was mainly developed. World War II would have accelerated this technology for navigation before GPS, before the satellites, sat nav and all that. And we have the old sounders and the sonars and the, the wheelhouse equipment part of them. Yeah, we have old safety equipment and Whatever. So we try and give, uh, give everyone a sort of feel for the industry and whatever questions they ask. Like the last thing we want to do is have it as a looking at a screen. I think people are to have enough with the, all those things. Uh, Interactive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, we want we don't want uh, powerpoints. Sorry, and videos and looking at, at at websites. We want people to be able to touch and see it like the lobster pot is there. And we do, you know, as I say, we do the not tying exercises and we've um, you know we do a little bit of that it's always good fun because people are have different levels of, of ability so we always yeah. and we've got a great collection of fish boxes here oh yeah killy uh, bags yeah oh well, and michael doran over there yeah yeah, yeah there's yeah. some of them there there's one from the father murphy there and the, with the fish box is, is was 50 years old last year believe it or not so really? half yeah. a century so and uh, but even even the fish boxes there tell a tale because how they're designed and how they held the fish and uh, let the fish, you know, let the water drain and the ice percolate through and keep the fish fresh. And that, the, you know, the, when you put a box on top of another one, it doesn't crush the fish underneath. Yeah. Once it's done properly, of course, all about training. Yeah. So, like, uh, even a simple thing like a fish box uh, has tells a story and how they've changed over the years. And in the old days, there were wooden boxes, um, which I think they're probably going back to now, because that is a fair part of the school of fish is, is fish handling and all the equipment that boats have on board nowadays, like they all obviously have their own, or most of them have their own ice machines and refrigeration, you know, fish handling equipment. Like in the old days, it was on your knees on the deck to pick the fish by hand into different boxes. And nowadays, you have conveyor belts and hoppers and stainless steel workbenches and washing machines clean and all that sort of stuff. And down into the fish hole for an immediate 
uh, refrigeration, which is the way it should be, of course, uh, for fish quality. But um, you know, so so like even in a reasonably short time, there's an awful lot of changes. So when do you expect the, you'll have the museum open? Uh, well, as I park the painter, just uh, still touching up stuff around here, and you can see there's a lot of stuff to be tidied up. But it's it looks worse than it is, I think. I'm hoping that in about two two weeks, if we if we have people coming from uh, coming out to the School of Fish, that we'll be able to take them in here to, to this table. We have an old propeller off a trawler, the old purple header, and we're going to clean it up and bronze it up, and we, we're putting a glass top on it. So it'll it'll be the centerpiece of um, where we'll be able to meet and greet and have the teas and coffees in the morning. Right. So you must have a great collection of things in your house, then. <laughs> you don't want to go there, as you say. <laughs> you can't see the television for uh, old radars and, <laughs> and compasses. But yes, there is. There's a lot of stuff hanging around, and... Um, Still up in the mother's house as well. She she screams at me every so often to clear the, clear all this junk out. So now at last, I think we've got somewhere to put it. Yeah, and and not, not just the fishing, but we the, the local history of the area, like the Taylor and the and the the, the MV Leinster. Like um, we'll never be able to compete with the fantastic museum at Dunleary, but we'll we'll do our own little uh, bit of uh, local history here. You know, the gun running and Granuel and all that sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff. There's no short. We've no shortage of whole history. Yeah, you've got plenty to go on anyway. Yeah, and no doubt as this opens up, people always come in and, and add stuff that you never heard of or didn't know about. Um, so you know we'll be glad to hear of any other history that we've missed. We and try and make room for it here if possible. Yeah. Sean, maybe you could talk a little bit about your family. Michael Doran was very, very well known and your mum, Muriel, as well, and they were both from Wexford. Yeah, that's correct. They were born both in Wexford back in the 1930s. But they moved to Holt uh, sometime in the late 1950s to follow the fish and start a family. And uh, I suppose anybody who's in the fishing business would know my father. He was a terrible man for collecting uh, trawlers. <laughs> At one stage he had 12 on the go. Yeah, he, he, he became quite a key figure in the fishing business around Holt and then opened up uh, a fish processing factory in Dublin uh, near the fish market called Let Dorn and Company which went for many years and now we've sort of consolidated all, all our business on the pier and now we've the fish shop and a few restaurants on the on the pier in Holt and unfortunately we got out of fish, the fishing business itself um, my two brothers Park and Michal were both skippers over the years but their well, Park is sort of uh, hung up as boots and uh, as fishing boots Michal is working in marine suppliers which is the ship shandry and net making stores here on the pier in Holt. And your mum, she was very involved in the business as well. Oh, well, as the old saying, behind every good man. Um, yeah, I mean, she's still hell and hearty, thank God, at 89 years of age. Comes down the pier a few times a week to keep me in my place and make sure that I'm doing the right things, I hope, in the business. So, yeah, she's she's very much still involved at 89 years of age and still likes to travel and uh, get to see the world. So, yeah, she's, she's in great form, thank God. And she used to be paying the fishermen when they'd come up to the house on a Saturday morning. Yeah, that's right. One of her, one of the jobs. I don't think she signed up for it, but uh, she ended up with it was uh, doing the shares for the fishermen uh, when we had all those boats, which must have been a fair chore in itself, keeping track of food and diesel and the insurances and all the different boats and the different crews that came and went, and uh, then sorting out the uh, cash and the payments for all these guys. Yeah, so uh, yeah, she was a tough woman she earned her she earned her wage for life there's no doubt about that yeah 
And you were saying when she came to Hove first, she she stayed in the the old Mariners Church there that came, that became the net making factory. Yeah, what well, was the Mariners Hall, and then became Icy Trawl for many years with uh, Ivor Christensen. Before he moved in, uh, it was fairly derelict, and she stayed there for a few nights. But she was and still is convinced it's haunted. Yeah, so she's um, she's put up with uh, an awful lot over being a through being a, a fisherman's wife over the years. And Hoth has changed hugely now. Like there was a time when you came along the pier and it was it would be net making and marine suppliers, but now you have all these restaurants as well, and you're very much part of that. Yeah, that's right. Well, I suppose that's I suppose it's a partly because of the demise of the fishing industry, which too long to get into <laughs> but uh, we won't thank the EU for our, our, our slice of the cake there but generally the fishing fleet has diminished in some way in the numbers anyway and uh, Holt by its proximity to Dublin like we look over our head here in Holt and you'll see literally hundreds of planes per day coming in from all over the world and these people are all coming over to Ireland to see what's going on and because Holt is so close to come out here and when they come out here and they know it's a fishing port well obviously they want seafood so is we yes we have built up a uh, reputation uh, to be a I suppose a tourist hub and seafood centre where we have six or seven restaurants and six or seven fish shops. So what's the idea behind the school of fish? Well again it's just it's led by people coming up down the harbour and if they see me or and I see them talking to other locals and they've they've always the questions to ask and the normal ones how far out do the boats go and how what do they catch and where and how long do they stay at sea for and hopefully will mean that uh, you know retired fishermen will have a an outlet and, uh, and an income that that they could come along on a, on a day when when we have enough people there and maybe we need we have extra demand and that we tell them all about the fishing industry and, and the goods and the bad and the old days when and the glory days and and uh, you know the present difficulties we have with with uh, quotas and Brexit and paperwork and all that sort of stuff that we have now that I suppose we didn't have to worry about as an industry 30 or 40 years ago but now we just seem to spend our time uh, wading through uh, forms and paperwork and licensing and and so on and I know it's all, there's a reason for everything but it's just, we seem to just as a nation seem to overwhelm ourselves with um, you know, with with, with, uh, old health and safety those three magic words which like you know, we, we yes we all have to have their life for us and the flares and the training but sometimes what we're asked to do is just above and beyond the common sense you know and and it costs fishermen and shoulder industries a lot of money but anyway yeah getting back to the subject of school of fish is really just to it's a sort of knowledge exchange and to where myself and people immersed in the industry and uh, give this information over to other people who have come to Hout and um, want to know that or who are uh, interested in it and have time uh, and they, you know they don't want the false you know experience they want the full truth of, of, of you know and the stories about fishing and the hardships and maybe a few of the, the fishermen's tales because every fisherman has a has a favourite story that they I know myself I hauled up on the west coast of Ireland near the Skelligs we hauled up a depth charge World War II depth charge which wasn't uh, we weren't too happy to see on board the boat and I know of a picture of my father sitting on a torpedo uh, Second World War era back in the old Father Murphy trawler back in the 1970s so there's lots and lots of stories like that and um, you know funny some funny some not so and uh, obviously there's a lot of tragedies around the coast as well 
and many, many more stories to go and run and how, to, and how the harbour was built. And but also, what I'm hoping for is that um, it it would sort of be a supplement to to education for chefs and, and people who own restaurants where they might bring their staff out for the day and really learn about fish and where it comes from and different things like sustainability and you know really what stocks are good to you know rather than the what you're reading in newspapers just so much misinformation out there now and um talk to the guys who fill the fish and give them a chance to you know hopefully learn a few skills as well and we we always do a little end end of day thing where we do a little bit of knot tying and teaching people how to splice a three strand rope which everybody gets even though people say they won't but they always do because it's quite simple do you teach them the bowline as well oh we teach them the bowline if they're yeah if they can keep their fingers and thumbs separated yeah <laughs> it's always the hard one but yeah and that was sean doran speaking to lorna siggins in hoth the admiralty charge for the coast of brazil shows a small circle 80 miles offshore it marks the final resting place of the Italian liner, the Principessa Mafalda. Norman Freeman has the story. On the chart of the ocean, 80 miles east of the Brazilian city of Bahia, a small dotted circle marks the deep resting place of the Principessa Mafalda. The disaster of this transatlantic liner, once the flagship of Italy's leading shipping company, made world headlines in 1927. She sank with the loss of 314 out of 1,200 passengers and crew. The ship was launched in 1910 and named after Principessa Mafalda, the second daughter of the Italian monarch, Victor Emmanuel III. Of 9,200 tonnes, the vessel was designed for the voyage between Genoa and Buenos Aires. It became known for its luxury, spacious first-class cabins, two-storey ballroom and excellent food. However, after many years voyaging on that route, it became prone to mechanical faults. In October 1927, it set off on one more voyage. Several times it stopped in mid-ocean while the engineers struggled with the engines. At the Cape Verde Island stop, more repairs were carried out, and it continued on its journey. The ship crossed the equator with a colourful ceremony the orchestra playing and an enormous cake produced by the team of pastry chefs. However, by the 25th of the month, it had developed a list to port. Two days later came a great rumbling. The starboard propeller shaft had fractured. It had shifted off its axis and gouged several gashes in the hull. It was found that the watertight doors could not be closed. The captain had an SOS sent out and shortly afterwards, several ships came to the rescue including a Dutch and a British liner. With clear weather and ships standing by, it seemed that the crisis was under control. However, panic spread on board. Not all the lifeboats could be launched because of the list of the ship. Some were rushed and swamped by frantic passengers. One of the first lifeboats to get safely away was filled almost entirely with crew, including the ship's purser, a very senior figure. Other lifeboats making their escape had many crew members on board, while passengers yelled from the railings of the sinking ship. Confused messages from the Principessa Mafalda made it difficult for the rescuing ships to provide effective help. They launched lifeboats and picked up many from the sea. 
Amid final scenes of chaos, the captain drowned and the chief engineer was reported to have shot himself. The liner sank stern first. The official inquiry by the marine authorities in Italy avoided making any judgments on the behaviour of the captain, officers and crew. It was an embarrassing subject. The tragedy of the ship became linked with that of the princess after whom it was named. In 1925, Principessa Mafalda married Prince Philip of Hesse, a leading member of German royalty, with whom she had four children. For a time, he was a supporter of Hitler, and he and his wife acted as a link with Mussolini's regime in Italy. However, when Italy surrendered to the Allies in 1943, Hitler believed that she was conspiring against Germany. He ordered her arrest by the Gestapo. A royal princess she may have been, but she was sent to Buchenwald concentration camp, a place of great deprivation and brutality. She died there in pain and suffering. Her tragic figure has never been forgotten in Italy. The story of a princess, cosseted by wealth and privileges of royalty, dying in a place of anguish and misery, has been dramatised on Italian television. The postage stamp issued in 1995 shows her wistful face with its dark eyes and short wavy hair against a background of barbed wire and a concentration camp barracks. And an impressive bronze statue of her overlooks Lake Como, dedicated to all those women who died in Buchenwald. As far as I know, there is no memorial to the ship that bore her name, except for the small circle on the marine chart. And that was Norman Freeman. Last week on the programme, we heard extracts from the Oireachtas Transport Committee hearings into the Irish Coast Guard Service and some disturbing claims made about the culture there. Senator Gerard Corkrell is a member of the Transport Committee who's taken an active interest in this subject. I asked him what he believed was going on in the Coast Guard. I think right now there's a toxic relationship between the volunteer group and the permanent members of the Coast Guard. There are a number of human resource issues that clearly need sorting out. Um, we've had Kieran Mulvey uh, done in, in um, Clare trying to solve the problems down there. That's in Doolin. Do the Doolin issue. And we have situations now where volunteers who rock the boat are sort of told, we'll deal with that in a day or two, and then two people from the Coast Guard arrive at their house and tell them they're dismissed and no longer required. And that's something. Has that actually happened? Oh, yes, in several cases. Okay. Now, we've had several people from the Coast Guard contacting us about various issues in relation to different stations around the country. All of them won't come on the record because they feel it will come back against them and they feel that the internal structures for dealing with complaints maybe about facilities typically are not being dealt with. Yeah, look, we have a number of issues and a number of cases uh, that have been brought to the attention of the Coast Guard that haven't been dealt with. A classic case in point is the uh, life jacket that was introduced in 2015. Um, it was tested first in Ring Skiddy and it was found to be faulty. It was then tested in various stations around the country found to be faulty 
it was actually the test was videoed in uh, Donegal, where again it failed. When I say it failed, what am I talking about? The life jacket would inflate on one side only, or it would inflate with such force that it would injure the wearer of the life jacket. Uh, and this continued on until the uh, the last Rochdus committee, uh, when we met Cueg, the supervisory group, uh, they told us that they tested the life jacket in 2018, and following the test, the life jacket was immediately removed okay. from service. So, uh, I mean, they're not listening to the people on the ground. What have the, you've had the Coast Guard into you as well here on the Transport Committee? What have they said to you, the Coast Guard themselves? Uh, the Coast Guard, the meeting we had with the Coast Guard was actually extremely disappointing. They were unable to answer most of the questions that were put to them. Um, so they're due back, Fergal, to deal with the, the issues that have arisen there. My key concerns are such things as health and safety issues as reported and not being dealt with. The dismissal of, uh, of volunteers not being dealt with, without explanation. Uh, and I suppose the other thing that we, we really need to get to grips with is procurement. You will be aware of the fact that I, I uh, had an issue with the controller and Auditor General who found that they were wasting money in the purchase of vehicles paying way over the odds. Uh, there are so many issues there and they have failed steadfastly to answer them. And the most important issue from a volunteer point of view is I have still been able, unable to uh, ascertain who certifies the qualifications of people who are volunteers? What external body oversees and uh, underpins the qualification of um, volunteers in the Coast Guard? So I am extremely worried at a, a, an organisation that is, for all intents and purposes, great people, dysfunctional. They work alongside the lifeboats, the RNLI. You never hear complaints from the RNLI. What's the difference between the two? Look, the RNLI is several hundred years, I suppose, out there working together. But the RNLI have an extremely integrated system of you know, there's reporting mechanisms, there's uh, management in place, there are systems in place for dealing with grievances, there's expert training in place. Uh, I think the RNLI is a far happier environment to work in. And you're dead right, they, they do operate in the same sort of areas. Uh, a, a recent case in point, we had an accident down on the Cliffs of Moor where somebody yeah, went... We heard about it last week, yeah. Yeah, so they, the Coast Guard arrives and they have to stand outside the fence, they can't go in and the patient is lying on the ground screaming uh, this is simply not good enough and I'm not so sure as to how we finished up where we are uh, and I'm not so sure how we're going to fix it uh, my, I, I know there is a, a belief that the Coast Guard needs to be moved out of the Department of Transport and moved into the Department of Defence it is like the Civil Defence it should be within that era and I think we're in defence probably much better at dealing with HR issues with volunteers. Because the Coast Guard, it is an arm of the civil service, really. Absolutely. It comes in under the same uh, guise as the civil defence or the uh, uh, reserve defence. Uh, so you have volunteers there. You have systems in place, mechanisms in place, where we know how to deal with volunteers. And, you know, volunteers are great people. And I, I don't want to completely knock the Coast Guard. The key thing here is there is no interaction that I can ascertain at the, this point in time. The Coast Guard themselves will be back before the Joint Oireachtas Committee. The current uh, uh, procurement process for the next helicopter service, I believe that that entire process now has to stop and restart. 
last week you had the volunteers representative of the association before you they described what they said was a toxic atmosphere in the Coast Guard do they represent many people in the organisation? Yes I do believe that they represent a significant number probably somewhere between 30 and 35% at this point in time and indicative of that Fergal is the fact that there a lot of people who are a part of that group are afraid to publicly state they're a part of it because um, uh, of repercussions from the Coast Guard. Interesting thing here is that the Coast Guard with the CUAG group, who would be the supervisory volunteer group, they don't have a mandate. There is no election process uh, to become a member of CUAG, whereas with the Irish Volunteers, or, sorry, the Irish Coast Guard Volunteer Association, they have actually gone through a, a democratic process. All of the people that are involved have been elected and they do represent a significant number. What are the Transport Committee going to do? What can they do? Oh, well, I think the first thing we're going to do is have the COEG group back again uh, to answer questions they failed to answer. Then we're going to have the Coast Guard back in, and I think we will be making a number of recommendations to the uh, department and to the government, and one of those recommendations will be to move the Coast Guard uh, out of transport. It's not the right place for it. Move it into defence, which is where it should be. That was Senator Jared Crockwell. I will keep you updated on what's happening with Coast Guard and the Transport Committee. And that's it for Seascapes for this week. We're back at the same time next Friday. Everything on the programme is podcast. It's on our website, rte.ie seascapes. And if you want to contact me or the programme, the email is seascapes at rt.ie. If you're anywhere on or near the water over the next week, stay safe. Seascapes is presented and produced by Fergal Keane.